0: Bible biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Elisha, the prophet. Uh, we have in a previous episode looked at the life of Elijah. So Elisha's story can be found in 1 Kings chapter 19. And Mike, uh, just remind us of the connection between Elijah and Elisha.
1: Well, Elisha was, I almost said uh, his disciple, his trainee, but that might almost be a bit grand in many ways because um, Elijah was really reluctant to take anybody on. As we saw in a previous episode, Elijah really was very much a loner and preferred to work alone. But God had very clearly said to him when he'd encountered him, at Mount Sinai, that he was to go and do certain things, anoint a king, a new king of Israel, anoint a king of Aram, and he was to anoint Elisha as his successor. So this was God's word to him. He couldn't get away from it, but he he really was very reluctant. So at the end of 1 Kings 19, we find that Elijah goes off and finds Elisha, son of Shaphat. That's all we know about him. What's he doing? He's Plowing a field, and there are 12 teams of oxen. Well, that tells us one thing this is a pretty wealthy family that he comes from. So he's a farm worker. So he's a farm worker, and he's getting on with his ordinary work when this prophet Elijah, who I assume he must have known, I mean, Elijah was a pretty well known figure, uh, and goes over to him and throws his cloak across his shoulder. And then the text says it threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Oh, so he didn't say anything? Yeah, he's like, yeah, all right, I've done it. That's what God told me to do. So Elisha then has to leave all his oxen standing there and, and runs after him because Elisha has understood the significance of this. The prophet, the prophet of Israel has thrown his cloak over my shoulder. He'd understood this was a calling to come and work with him. So he goes and runs and says, yeah, yeah, I'll come, but first let me say goodbye to my mother and father, and then I'll go. And Elijah says, Go on back, but think about what I've done to you. But the whole tone of that in the Hebrew is is almost a, yeah, go back. Do I care? <laughs> it, it really was a, I really, I'm not bothered whether you come or not. So this was the start of this supposed discipling and mentoring relationship. Elisha was great. He just goes back. He says his goodbye. Uh, he returns to the oxen that he's been plowing with. He kills them. He uses the wood of the plow to make a an altar, uh, and sacrifices the offering to God. And then it says he went with Elijah as his assistant.
0: He could have been put off by the attitude of his would-be teacher.
1: Well, I think I would have been put off, wouldn't you? I mean, here you are, you're about to sacrifice everything. Looks like you're a pretty wealthy family, life looks okay, and now you're called to follow this guy who is, let's face it, slightly crazy, Um Seems to dress and live very simply, fed by ravens at times. You know, taking water from brooks where he can find it in times of drought and famine, and he's ready to do this. So I think it says a lot about what is in Elisha's heart. But I don't know if I would wanted to have gone and worked alongside Elijah. I think it would have been a pretty tough character.
0: Yeah, not a career
1: choice by the sound of it, but a calling, and that's the difference.
0: So Elijah does sort of mentor Elisha for some time. What,
1: what does Elisha witness uh, in Elijah's presence? Well, some of the things we simply don't know, because there are gaps in the story that we are told. The Bible doesn't always tell us everything. It tells us everything we need to know, but not everything we'd like to know. But one of the big things that he sees is actually towards the end of Elijah's life. Now, presumably he'd seen all sorts of other things in the meantime that had gone on, but in two kings, in the second book of Kings now, chapter two, um, when the Lord's about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, the, the chapter begins, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal and Elijah says to Elisha, stay here because the Lord has called me on to Bethel. So again, he doesn't want this guy around. He wants to be on his own. But as we read on the story, Elisha just won't give in. As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself with, I will never leave you. Wow. What commitment that is to this really difficult guy. <laughs> <laughs> mm. He must have known that call to go and work with him must have been so strong to push through things like this.
0: Wasn't just a cloak over the shoulder.
1: It wasn't just a cloak, you know, in the cloak, clearly God had had an encounter with him. And even when prophets later that day on the journey say, listen, God's spoken to you. Do you know the Lord's going to take your master away today? And he said, yeah, I know, I know. He clearly knew what was about to happen. So they continue with their journey and Elijah tries it once more when they get to the River Jordan. He says, look, stay here uh, because the Lord has told me to go to the Jordan River. And again, Elisha does this, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will never leave you. And so they make their way to the River Jordan. And as they get to the Jordan, Elijah takes off his cloak and he strikes the water of the river Jordan with it. And suddenly the river divides in the same way that the Red Sea had divided for Moses, in the same way that the Jordan had divided for Joshua. Here at this key moment when the faith of Israel could have been so easily extinguished because of the Baal worship that we looked at in a previous episode, here God does this incredible miracle The water divides and the two go across. And as they get to the other side, at last, Elijah, and I suspect somewhat reluctantly again, says, tell me what I can do for you. And Elisha says that, well, now freeze, please let me inherit a, a double portion, a double share of your spirit and become your successor. And that request to have a double portion was not, as people often think, a request to be twice as powerful. The double portion was the portion of the eldest son. When a father divided up his inheritance, if he had five sons, he would divide his inheritance into six. And the eldest son got two portions because he was now taking responsibility for the wider family. So had greater responsibility, greater needs, and he would now be the head of the family. So asking for a double portion is not asking to be twice as powerful. It really is unashamedly asking, can I please be your Successor, and Elijah says, "Well, you've asked a difficult thing, but if you see me when I'm taken, it will be yours." And then, as they're walking along, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire, and it just simply gathers up Elijah into the chariot, and in a whirlwind takes him up into heaven. And Elisha's left there, just shouting out, "My father, my father! I see the chariots and charioteers of heaven!" and And suddenly, Elijah has gone, and it all now falls on him. But what Elijah has left behind is his cloak on the ground. And at this point, Elisha has a choice. You know, he could have thought, okay, this is just getting weird. Time to go home, I think. I'm not sure I knew what I was asking for. Or he could do what he did do. He went and he picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen, you know, when he was... Mm. In the same the cloak that had been put around his shoulders back in the field. Exactly. And he picks that cloak up. And now he has to become the Elijah, the man that Elijah was. So he goes back to the River Jordan and he picks that cloak up and he strikes the river, but he calls out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Now I love that because it's not the striking of the river itself. This is not magic. He's acting something symbolic and he's suddenly calling out to God. Where is the God of Elijah? I need you now to be my God. And immediately the Jordan divides and he goes across and he finds the other prophets and they say, we want to go and look for Elijah. And he says, there's no point. You won't find him. And Elisha's ministry has begun.
0: Just a moment of total commitment.
1: A moment of total commitment, total decision. This was really burning your bridges. The minute he picked up that cloak, the minute he called out, this was it. And remember, these were not easy days. Like we saw in the previous episode with Elijah, these were dark days. Dark days of Baal worship. Now Elijah had had this great contest on Mount Carmel, and had ended up showing how great Yahweh was. He'd ended up killing all those hundreds of prophets of Baal, but they didn't disappear. And Baal worship didn't disappear overnight, and it wouldn't disappear in Israel's history. So he is still facing the same challenges that Elijah had been facing. So to pick up that cloak, this guy must have known what he was doing. And to do that, you know, he must have known that call of God from that moment the cloak was put on him, from the moment he picked it up. And that's why it's so important, even for us today, to know that God's called us to something. That may not just be something spiritual in church, you know, the work that we do, whatever it might be. To know that God has called us is what keeps us going when it gets tough so that we can say, I have no choice but to pick up this cloak because I know God has spoken and it will be tough. But if God has spoken, God will be with me as he's about to show himself definitely to be with Elisha.
0: Now, Elisha could have said, Elijah is a very hard act to follow. (laughs) But what does this actually tell us about Elisha being his own man?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, because as we read on in the story, we find that Elisha is not a carbon copy of Elijah. So Elijah is much more the lone figure, big, powerful actions like that battle on Mount Carmel. Elisha is a much more sensitive thoughtful person. He actually seemed to like people. He did things for people. Elijah was much more big scale, big dramas, stuff on the big horizons, prophesying droughts, ending droughts. Elisha's definitely a a, a man of his own shaping and his own character. And and we see that in so many of the very different types of miracles that follow. And that's probably important, you know, when someone follows on from someone in, in a ministry or a role, it's so important that, yes, there's continuity of values particularly. But the next man or woman really have to do it in their own way according to the gifting and character that God has given them and not just try to be a carbon copy of the guy or the woman who went before. If you try that, I can tell you now you will fail. And it's great. Elisha clearly knew that because his own character and approach comes out. And yet it's the same Lord, the same anointing, the same battle but carried out in a completely different way.
0: So what part did Elisha play then
1: in the ongoing story here? Well, we find him with many different kinds of miracles. Why why miracles? By the way, miracles don't happen all the way through the Bible. They tend to occur at key stages in the unfolding of God's history. So like at the Exodus, like here, where... Yahweh worship was almost being blotted out, like when Jesus comes. And so this is a period in these uh, dark days of the ninth and just going into the eighth century BC with Elisha, where there is so much hostility, so much darkness. And that's why we get so many miracles. It's almost like people need to see it. They've got loads of religion. They need to see that faith in Yahweh makes a difference. I think that has relevance for us today when there's loads of spiritualities around in the West if people want it. But what is it that we will say and in particularly do that will make people stand up and take note? Interestingly, one of the first miracles is, is not typical of the ones that, that follow uh, with Elisha. One day he, he settles in Jericho. That becomes his uh, base and one day he's there in Jericho, and the water's gone bad. And the leaders, the elders of the town, uh, say, "Look, can can you do something about this water?" And he performs a miracle that gets rid of all the bitterness of the water. That's in Two Kings, chapter two. But here's the interesting thing: after that miracle, it says that Elijah then left Jericho and went up to Bethel. And as he's walking along the road, there's this group of boys. Now the Hebrew there suggests it's not young boys it suggests it's more what we might call teenage louts (laughs) so these are guys hanging around the street they've nothing better to do they're causing trouble and he bumps into these guys as he's on his journey and they start mocking and making fun of him what do they say they say go away baldy well that tells us one thing about how he looked he (laughs) seemed to have uh, not had much hair and the go away could also be translated, go up, go up, Baldy. They're probably parodying, making fun of, hey, look, here's that follower of Elijah. Are you going to go up in a chariot as well, bald head? Mm. This is a real despising of the anointed man of God. And he turns round and he looks at them. Very unusual, this next bit. He curses them in the name of the Lord. And the next verse tells us that then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. Oh, my goodness, this was a big crowd. It's a bit of an overreaction, surely. It does seem to be, though it's interesting that he leaves it in God's hands. He does curse them, but he doesn't say with what. And I think, remember, David, that this was a season when worship of Yahweh had almost been extinguished. Yes, it is extreme. But this is God making clear who he is at a time when people just aren't bothered anymore. Do you know? And the truth is the Bible has a lot to say about God ultimately being a God of judgment. Praise God. His judgment is always his last word, not his first. But judgment does come for those who continually reject him. And clearly from this description, a whole gang of them, 42 of them, louts on the street, they just think they can mock the servant of God at this time.
0: And show no respect.
1: And show no respect. And here's God making very clear, you need to listen to this man because he has a message.
0: So that was a very unusual, but very personal kind of miracle situation, you might say. Were there other situations like that? Or well,
1: there were a whole number of them. In fact, as you read through these first few chapters of um, two kings, we, we find a whole number. So we've already seen that he purified water in Jericho when it went bad. In 2 Kings chapter four, we find him helping a poor widow. Now remember a widow in those days, no one to help her at all. And uh, her creditors are just about to come and she's got nothing to give them. And it looks like they're going to have to sell, she's going to have to sell herself and her son into slavery uh, to pay off the debt. Uh, And so he says, "Well." How can I help you? What have you got? And she says, "I've nothing. I've just uh, a flask of of olive oil." And he says, "Okay, go around all your neighbors, find as many jars as flasks, bottles as you can, and bring them to me." And as she does, he prays over them, and each jar that is brought, every single one of them, is filled to the brim with olive oil, miraculously. Now, olive oil was incredibly precious in those days; it was used for lamps, it was used in cooking, it, it was used as a soap, it, it was like one of the staples of life there. And he keeps on praying, he keeps on praying, and as many jars and vessels as she fill, they keep getting filled up. And then when she can't bring any more, the oil stops flowing, and Elisha says, okay, go and sell the olive oil and pay your debts. Elijah had been a man who'd operated on the big-scale scenario. Here is now God showing us that he's just as concerned for the small scale, the small thing. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this is just what one widow with one son. But God sees her. God knows her need and God provides for her through Elisha. So with Elisha, we get a very tender touch with the miracles later on uh, in that chapter in chapter four. He will. Uh, raise a young man from the dead, uh, the young boy of uh, a woman, a wealthy woman who provided a home for him to live in when he passed by in the town of Shunem. And this young boy dies. And again, he performs this miracle of giving a son back. Later on in chapter four, he'll heal, he'll purify some food that had got poisoned and he'll, he'll feed a hundred people. It's almost like a, a forerunner of the miracle that Jesus would do with the feeding of the 5,000. So this immense care and compassion for the marginalised, the unloved, the uncared for. So quite a different character, but the same God as Elijah who's demonstrating this.
0: So a lot of compassion, a lot of personal situations. It wasn't necessarily this
1: mouthpiece for God in a public sort of way. Much more personal and individualised than Elijah had ever been. Even down to the level of, there's a great story in chapter six, where some guys are uh, chopping away and they've got an axe and the axe head flies off. Now, remember in these days, iron was very precious. Mm. More than that, he'd borrowed the axe from a neighbor. So this did not look good. And Elisha makes the axe head float (laughs) to the surface. Now, we all know iron Cannot float like that. Not in that form. If it's a ship, maybe. So this is an axe head. This is an axe head. Coming this to the coming to the surface of the water. An incredible miracle. And as it does, he tells the guy to reach out, grab for it. I don't know the how of it happened. All I know is this is God, once again, showing his incredible compassion for widows who've got no money, for a woman who loses her son, for a guy who's lost an axe head. And it's not even just for people in Israel, because all those stories are sandwiched in chapter 5 with the story of the healing of Naaman, who is not an Israelite at all, but an Aramaean, a Syrian. He's a great commander of the king's army, and he's got leprosy, and Elisha actually heals him as a It's a picture, a demonstration that the God of Israel is actually also the God for the whole world. So,
0: again, personal situations and what you just said, I thought was significant, that the question of how isn't necessarily as important as the question of why.
1: Yes. And like I said before, um, the Bible doesn't always tell us what we'd like to know. It tells us what we need to know. And I'd love to know. they would have done it. But what matters is why it was done. It was done. I believe with all my heart. I believe this is the inspired word of God and it's truth. And I'd love to know how it was done. Like I'd like to know lots of things were done in the Bible. But the fact that it was done is a measure of God's compassion. One of the things that comes out so often, whether it's in the prophets of the law, is the compassion of God over the little things. Some of the prophets later on we'll see will challenge those who are rich because they're just not bothered about the ones who don't have. Elisha here is caring for the poor. So much in the law has laws commanding care for those who've fallen on hard times and for people not to harden their hearts. And here's a man who's just not too busy to stop and help a guy recover what would have been an immensely valuable piece of kit in those days.
0: So maybe another reminder that the little things in life, do matter.
1: The little things in life absolutely matter. That's why I always love that passage where Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Man, look at the birds of the air, you know, look at the flowers of the field. You could walk past that, but God clothes those. God feeds those. And if God feeds the birds of the air and clothes the flowers of the field, will, will he not much more clothe you or you of little faith, Jesus said? Not a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing, Jesus said somewhere else. So if anyone's listening today and they've got needs and they think, oh, I don't know if I can bring that to God. It seems so small when there's so many big things in the world. Listen, the story of Elisha says, bring those things. God is a God who hears and answers.
0: So as well as the the personal significance of Elisha's life, was there anything where he spoke into the, the nation, into history?
1: Well, he does it in a number of ways. In chapter five, he he does this healing, as we've just said, of Naaman, the Aramaean commander. And in itself, that is a speaking to the nations and saying, this God is the God of the nations and not just of Israel. But there will be some sort of more national scale things uh, he does. And there were things that he'd been commanded to do or that Elijah, in one case, had been commanded to do. So at one point, he anoints a guy called Hazael as king of Aram in 2 Kings chapter 8. Um, He sent a prophet to anoint uh, Jehu as the next king of Israel. And both of those were tasks that Elijah had given him back in 1 Kings chapter 19. So there are some more national things because those would be very key you know, anointing future kings is clearly a national event. But by and large, we find Elisha operating at this more intimate, personal level, rather than the grand scale of things that Elijah had done.
0: But that anointing of Jehu, you say, king of Israel. So we're coming back to the, the main point here, aren't we, of <laughs> the, the line of kings?
1: Yes. The whole thing about these kings in Israel Was that they weren't descendants of David. In Judah, in the southern nation, every single king over this period would be a descendant of King David. That's not how it started in the north. Jeroboam, if you remember, the first king had simply been one of Solomon's military commanders. And there's no such thing throughout this period in Israel as hereditary succession. Some of the kings only last. For a matter of days or weeks. Some are bumped off. Some live longer lives and are succeeded by their kings, but there will be constant breaks. And there's definitely a constant break at this point where he's sent to anoint Jehu as the king of Israel uh, in chapter nine.
0: We heard in a previous episode that Elijah's taken
1: up to heaven in a whirlwind. How, How did Elisha's days finish? Well, his were much more ordinary. Uh, much like most of us actually it seems that eventually he died as the consequence of some illness and yet he still kept going to the very end he refused to be written off so in two kings chapter 13 uh, when elisha's it says in his last illness interesting he must have had some others it's interesting that in the bible you know not everybody always gets healed here he is in an illness and it uh, the king, the king was ruling now, called uh, Jehoash of Israel, visited him, and he weeps and he says, "My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel." Was he thinking of it naturally, or was he thinking of the heavenly ones that he'd seen? And he, he tells the king to to get a bow and an arrow, and he's too weak to pull it himself, and he he pulls the gets the king to pull the bow, and he puts his hand on it, and he says, "Open the window," and they shoot the arrow out. And he gives the final prophetic word to the king (laughs) through this last act. And he says, this is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram, for you will completely conquer the Arameans' afact. And then he says, pick up the other arrows and strike the ground. And the king strikes them three times. And then Elisha gets a bit cross with him and said, you should have struck them five or six times. And now you're not going to have a full victory. It'll only be a, a partial one. And then it simply says, then Elisha died and was buried. Just like that. So he dies a very ordinary life, just like you and me. It seems as the result of an illness, but he's still going there to the end. What an example for us, you know, not to go into retirement, not to give up, but to keep with the ministry God's given you as long as you've got breath in your body. And was that the last we hear of him or the last impact he had? Well, it seems his bones had some impact because having been buried, when some dead people were thrown on top of him and his bones, they suddenly sprang back to life again. Don't ask me to explain that one. God does some weird stuff sometimes.
0: As you look back, though, on the life of Elisha, quite different to Elijah and what he witnessed, what he saw, what he did, how he responded. What are your
1: conclusions about his life for us today? I think I would say God uses many different characters and personalities. We don't need to be someone else. We don't need to imitate someone else. If anybody could have been imitated, it was Elijah, this fierce opponent of the Baal worship. But Elisha, although he was mentored by him, never tried to be like him. What he learned from him were his values and his faith And he applied that in his own way, in his own life. And so we get this tremendous compassion. So for me, the thing I take away from Elisha's life is don't try to be anyone else. Be who God has made you in the shape God has given you, with the gifts God has given you. And if you will, God can do us many amazing things, even if they're different to someone else.
0: David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.